series called I Have a Question. Did you know that when Jesus taught, Jesus did not stand in the front of a, of a building and, uh, you know, preach a sermon and everyone had to listen and everyone had to say amen and everyone had to, you know, you couldn't ask a question, couldn't interrupt him, couldn't say anything, and then they just went home. Um, that's not really the way that Jesus taught. If you've read the, the Gospels at all, you see that Jesus taught in a very interactive way. Uh, in fact, Jesus asked a lot of questions to people. Sometimes when people asked him a question, they even asked him a question to challenge him and to box him in and to put him in a corner and to trap him. And he would sometimes return a question with a question. He would ask people questions about himself and what they thought about him. Uh, he interacted with people, and he didn't, he didn't shy away from them. He didn't run away from them. Um, and so I wanted to come up with a series where people's questions could be answered. And, and I've discovered over the years that people have a lot of questions about the Bible and about Christianity, and they often don't have a forum to ask them. And they're afraid that if they do ask them, people will look at them funny and think that they don't have faith. Why are you asking this question? Don't you believe, you know, what's wrong with you? And really, the person who's criticizing has the same question, of course, you know. So I wanted to, to do something for you in that, in that uh, context. Last week, we talked about the idea, uh, does it really matter what I believe as long as I'm sincere? Doesn't my belief and my sincerity count for something? Uh, in the grand scheme of things at the end of the day, and we tried to address that question. And uh, today we're going to talk about don't all religions lead to the same God? And next week, uh, isn't Christianity just another one of the many religions out there? And isn't religion the source of all the problems in the world anyway? So what's so special about Christianity? We'll talk about that next week. And then on the fourth week, it's your show. Uh, so you get, to, you get to be the preachers. I'm just going to ask your questions, uh, answer your questions all morning, okay, on the, uh, the fourth week. Uh, but you have to participate in this, all right? So there's two ways that you can do that. Um, it helps me if I have sometimes some preparation, depending on the question. Some questions I can answer on the fly, but some I need a little bit of, uh, I have to dig a little bit and to, to come up with a good answer. So if you've got a, you know, Bible, God question, religion question, and you think it's a heavy one, put it on a piece of paper. You don't even have to sign it. I don't care who it comes from. If you want me to know it's coming from you, fine. Give, me, give it to me on a piece of paper over the next couple of weeks, and then I can prepare the answer, or just show up on the, uh, on the fourth week of this message series and come with your question, and I'll do my best. But if you don't, if you don't give me ammunition on that fourth week, I'm just going to leave the, the, the table, and I'm going to go and have fun with the kids and just leave you here to talk. Okay, so that's the way that it's going to work. Um, you have to participate or I will do what I'm saying, okay? I may just conjure up the boldness to do it, and I'll just go over with the kids and let you all talk and have tea, and then you can go home after, okay? I really want to give you the opportunity to participate. And remember, no question is a bad question. If they could challenge Jesus and try and trap him, and he would answer their questions, well, don't you think your honest question about God and the Bible is good? God loves to hear those questions, um, and, and I love to as well. Even if I don't have the answer, I will do my best, okay? So today, we're going to talk about this idea, uh, don't all religions lead to the same God? 
Wouldn't that be nice, right? If, if whatever the religious view is, I mean, th- this is a question that suggests unity, that suggests that even though there's all these different beliefs, don't they somehow lead to the same God in the end? Um, you know, it's the, there's an old illustration of all these, these, these blind people who they're touching an elephant and they're blindfolded, let's say, and they, one of them touches the elephant and says the elephant is this way and the other one touches a different part of the elephant and says the elephant's that way, but they're all talking about the same elephant. So the illustration is used, well, don't all religions lead to the same God? And uh, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be good if we all acknowledge this? Then maybe we could get along. And so the, the question on the surface is, is not a bad one. It's one that we would like that to be true. Um, and, and some say, well, isn't God too big for, for one religion? I mean, isn't it religion that has, has divided us? Uh, don't all roads lead to the same God? Don't all religions lead to the same God? Don't they all teach the same thing? Um, first observation for you, uh, the problem with that idea just right off the bat is that all religions do not teach the same thing. In fact, they teach very, very different things, uh, very different things. And I've put a picture on the screen there of you've got so many different religious views just squashed into there. Uh, And they all teach different things about God, about faith, about their sacred text, whatever it may be, about the afterlife, about salvation, if they do teach salvation at all. They all teach different things. And they teach about different gods as a result. Um, And so the idea that they could all lead to one deity somehow is an idea that just frankly is impossible because of the nature of what those things teach. They all teach different things. And this is where it can get very, very confusing uh, for us. Um, I came across a a really good resource. I don't have it on the screen, but um, it's one of the better resources that I've seen on world religion and cults around the world. And it's actually a comparison of the major tenets of all these belief systems. And it's got 20 of them in there, actually. uh, Different cults, different world religions, and the various differences between them. And I can send that to you uh, electronically, uh, you know, just a PDF file that you can print, or if you you can find a printer somewhere. It's really, really good stuff if you're interested uh, in that. But Religions all teach different things. Let me give you a case in point. At Joe's Abraham, who's a PhD in Islamic studies, uh, and we're fortunate enough to have him as part of our church, he's been going through uh, the religion of Islam, which, which to me, uh, Christians need an education uh, about Islam because this is, a, this is a religion that's quite pervasive now uh, in the Western world. And he's been, been teaching about this in his home. And, you know, people are learning, okay, this is what my Muslim neighbor believes. This is what they think. This is what they believe. Okay, can I just tell you that Islam and Christianity are teaching very different things. Um, they're teaching very different things about God. Uh, sometimes, uh, it, it, in particular with Islam and Christianity, the, the, the idea is, well, it's the same God. It's just two different ways of getting there. 
Okay, let me just give you one difference. Um, and I was reading about this this week. Um, in, in Christianity and in the Bible at large, forgiveness is attained how? Shout out some answers to me. How does one get forgiven of their sin according to the Bible and Christianity? Repentance and accepting the gift, the, the gift of forgiveness, how? By what, by what means? By confession, grace, okay? What's that mean? How is grace displayed in Christianity? By what Jesus did? Believing in Christ. And what did Christ do? Ah, okay, he died on the cross, we have a fancy word for that in theology. It starts with A. Atonement. Yeah, atonement means to, to cover. Uh, and so the idea is that the, the sacrifice of Jesus is an atonement for our sin. So we can repent. We can ask for forgiveness. All that is good. But if there's no atonement, there is no forgiveness. So the way the Bible phrases it in one line in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Okay, I think it's Hebrews 9, 27, just from memory. All right, so in, in, in the Bible, in Christianity, in Judaism as well, there's an atonement that has to take place in order for people to be forgiven. Okay, so God demands the death penalty for sin. And he demands that the life be taken from the individual that sins. So that's pretty severe. Like that's, a, that's the most severe judgment that you can have on sin. Did you know in Islam it's not like that? And jo, you can talk to Joe's after and he'll give you the details. He'll give you chapter and verse. But in Islam, there is no atonement for sin. In fact, some of the Muslim scholars mock Christianity and say, you know, how barbaric. That, that, that atonement is required for sin, not with, not, not with uh, our system. With our system, you, you, you ask for forgiveness, you repent, and you do good works, and God forgives you. And they argue that that's a whole lot more pleasant. Okay, that's a very different system, right? That's, and one could argue that that is even a different God. Because you have one God that demands the shedding of blood for forgiveness, and you have one that does not. So which one is the right one? You've got two different views there, two very, very different views, two different presentations of God. They're not both the same. In fact, in some, some religious views that you see on the screen there, the, the concepts of God actually contradict each other. They're not the same at all. So this idea that they could somehow all join into one and all represent the one God, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Last week we talked about Star Wars faith and Avatar faith. Um, uh, we, my family and I, we've been watching a little bit of the Star Wars series over the summer, right? And, and you know, I sit down with my family and we look at the religious worldview, in the movie, say, hey, look at that. That's Zen Buddhism being taught in Star Wars. That's what it is. It's Zen Buddhism. So the idea that, uh, uh, you know, the force is all around us and the presentation in Star Wars is very similar to Zen Buddhism. So the reason why you have 
problems in life is because you have desire. And desire leads to suffering. And so you've got to rid your life of desire. You rid your life of suffering. You can achieve nirvana. Uh, this is the presentation in Star Wars. It just has a different bow on it. Okay, it's Zen Buddhism. Uh, Zen Buddhism is not the same as Christianity at all, at all, at all. Buddhism is an atheistic religion at its roots. It does not believe in a deity in that sense. And Christianity is a monotheistic religion. So do you see, the more you look at this, the more you're going to see, wow, all these religions are teaching different stuff. So what do you do with that? Where do you go with that? And what happens with your question? Well, your question brings up other questions is what happens. Um, let, me, let me give you a statement that Jesus made uh, that is an astounding statement. Uh, it, this is found in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. Some of you have heard this uh, many, many times. He is in a conversation with his followers. In the, in the, he's in the ninth inning you know, of his life on earth, and he is about to face the cross. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. And my Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, uh, would I not have told you? Uh, uh, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Amazing statement. He's talking about going somewhere. He's talking about returning back from wherever he's going. And then he says, you know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas, who later on in the book of John uh, demands an evidence of, uh, from Jesus, Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus utters these, this famous sentence, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Oh boy, what do we have on our hands there? We have a statement that's very objective and that's very exclusive. So he talks about a way and he says he is that way. He talks about truth and he says he is the truth. He talks about life and he says he is that life. Right away there, you have a, wow, that's a pretty, either a very, very arrogant statement, or if it's true, it is, it has earth-shattering consequences, this thing. I am the way and the truth and the life, and then he goes even further, and he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Again, is he a megalomaniac or is he correct in what he's saying? Because this is an exclusive statement. He's claiming things. He, I mean, he, you can look at it and say, who's he think he is? God? He thinks he's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father except through him? Wow, this is uh, quite a statement, and it raises a number of other things in our minds when we, when, if we're to believe what he says. Um, and you have heard these things from people who you've tried to share your faith with, uh, share your faith with, and you have thought these things yourself. You may be even thinking of them now and pondering them now, 
Uh, number one, that is so incredibly close-minded. How can you say that, you, you know, if you're, if you're sharing your faith with your friend, that your, your Jesus is the only way? He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God except through him? How can you say that? How incredibly close-minded and narrow-minded you Christians are. Um, the, the problem with, with truth, uh, truth of, of a nature that he's claiming here, is that truth by nature is exclusive. So um, let me give you an example. Um, um, you, you're, you're seated in, in your seat right now. Do you know why? You know why you're not floating in the air? Because you're accelerating toward the center of the earth at a rate of 9.8 meters per second squared. That's why you're not floating right now. That's why when you relax and you sit in the seat, you stay in the seat. Do you know how you can prove this to be true? If, if I take this Bible and I take that big speaker on the end and I stand here and hold them each in one hand and I drop them, do you think the speaker, how many of you think the speaker is going to hit the floor quicker than the Bible? How many of you think that they're both going to hit the floor at the same time? Depending on the distance, yeah. Well, you know, if I have a feather in my hand and I have uh, the, 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 uh, the speaker in my hand and I've got a great distance, there could be some friction that'll keep that feather up in the air longer, right? It'll push up against it. But basically, if I take this and this and drop them, they're going to hit the floor at the same time. Why is that? Because they're both accelerating toward the earth at 9.8 meters per second square. You say, well, why is it 9.7? Well, because the, the, the mass of the earth relative to the mass of the object, that's, you can measure it to exactly 9.8 meters per second squared of acceleration toward the center of the earth. It's the, some, some people call it the force of gravity. Um, if you go up to the moon, it's going to be different over there because the moon's a lot smaller, different mass, so the attraction between the moon and the thing is be different. But here on earth, no matter where you go, no matter what you believe about it, it's 9.8 meters per second squared. It's objective truth. And there's nothing really that you can do to change it. Uh, you can say that it's unfair. You can say that it's narrow-minded, but it's the truth. It's, it's objectively true. Now, the question is, does objective truth exist in matters of religion? And this is where we all say, no, 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 no. You can't go there. We're willing to acknowledge gravity. We're willing to acknowledge all of this stuff. But if you start saying that there can actually be truth in matters of religion, now you're on, you're on bad ground. And the question is, why? Why is it that as soon as you enter into the realm of faith, you don't dare to ask that question? Could it be true that there is objective truth even in matters of faith in spirituality? Is it possible? One could argue that it's just as close-minded to reject that possibility. So the person who says, you know what, the only truth in religion is that there is no truth in religion. <laughs> well, that's a very, one could say that's a very narrow-minded statement. 
wouldn't it be more open-minded to acknowledge the possibility that truth could actually exist in matters even of religion? It exists in other matters in life. What if it did exist in matters of religion? I remember a, a fellow I was working with, and he said, as so close-minded that you think that. And I said, you know what? You're close-minded because you, you can't even open your eyes to the possibility that that could exist. And he turned, he took a double take. He didn't know what to do with that. Um, what is it uh, that Jesus does to show that what he says is true? I mean, this is a crazy claim to make. This is, uh, again, either he's a megalomaniac or maybe he's right. But what does he do to demonstrate this? What does the Bible do to try and demonstrate this? What's the argument from the scripture? Because what we have is we have an objective, exclusive statement being made. And it's not the only one that Jesus makes. He makes these statements all the time in the Gospels. And you see them in other places, even after the preaching of Jesus. So here's the argument that the scripture makes. Take it or leave it. It, it bases Jesus and who he is and the things that he says on his resurrection from the dead. This is the argument. So Acts chapter 17, and we've looked at this before as a church, Paul is in a totally non-Christian setting. He's in, in Athens, in Greece, on the Areopagus, and he's, he's trying to explain the Christian faith, as it were, to, to people of various beliefs and various philosophies. And what does he say as part of his discourse? Uh, For he has set a day, God has, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, referring to Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So the argument from Paul is the resurrection of the dead of Jesus Christ is what demonstrates his claims to be true, whether we like his claims or we do not like his claims. Uh, Paul would write later to the church in, in Corinth uh, the same idea. He would pass, he would, he would put the whole crux of his argument for belief on this idea that Jesus had been raised from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, um, which we sometimes read at funerals. Uh, For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, uh, and funerals and communion, ironically, we read this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. According to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, he appeared to the 12, he appeared to more than 500 people at the same time, some who were still alive, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then he appeared to me. But if it's preached that Christ has been, uh, has been raised from the dead, then how can some of you say that there's no resurrection? If there's no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ hasn't been raised, then guess what? Our preaching is useless, your faith is useless. You're still in your sins. We're false witnesses teaching this business about Jesus because if he hasn't been raised from the dead, the whole thing crumbles in on itself and uh, you're to be pitied above all men if you believe in this nonsense and it isn't true. So he hinges his whole argument on whether or not Jesus has been raised from the dead and you will see this in the New Testament essentially from cover to cover. The basis of truth of Jesus is, is staked on his resurrection. And this is what you see. Uh, second idea that comes in our minds, but that is so arrogant. 
to say. It's not only closed-minded, it's arrogant. I remember the same fellow I was working with, and, and I told him, I said, I believe I'm going to heaven when I die. And he said, how can you believe that? That's so arrogant. Uh, and he comes from a Roman Catholic background, and in some uh, ideas of Roman Catholicism, you can't have that degree of certainty. Uh, <laughs> and so he said, that's very, very arrogant. And, and that, that sometimes, that view is a justified view. Uh, because the problem here is that there's a view of superiority that happens. Whenever you have a religion that makes an exclusive truth claim, and Christianity is not the only religion to do that. Uh, there are many other religions that say, you know, they're the exclusive truth and, and, and there is none other and that type of stuff. Uh, I would argue that few of them say it the way that Jesus says it. Uh, however, there are exclusive truth claims in religion. Um, the problem that happens is that there's an arrogance that can develop there, and there's a view of superiority that can develop where, you, where the way that we're interacting with people, if we believe this statement that Jesus said, it can come across as very, very arrogant. Uh, and the problem is you don't see anything like this in the Scripture. Recently, I had a, a discussion at, the, at my front door with a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses, and if any of you know, know me, you know that I love talking with Jehovah's Witnesses. So they came to my door, these two ladies, and they had their little invitation to whatever. And they said, sir, do you believe the Bible? I said, yes, I believe the Bible. And they said, well, that's good, sir. Do you believe the Bible is the word of God? I said, yes, I believe the Bible is the word of God. They said, let me read this passage of scripture to you. And they read from, the, from 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for correcting and teaching and righteousness and all this. I, they said, do you believe that? I said, absolutely, I believe that. And I said, you know what I also believe? I believe that we should interpret the scripture as the scripture is written. And we shouldn't push our own view into the scripture and claim that it says something that it doesn't say. Then they said, yes, we agree with that. We agree with that. And I said, well, let me tell you where I disagree with you. And I said to them, you know, you're, you believe very different things about God and Jesus and the Bible than I do. And we went into a little differences of what we believe. And I said, and I said, do, do you see the difference? They said, yes, so we see, we see. Would you be open to having a Bible study? I said, absolutely, I'd be open to having a Bible study. Would you be open to changing your point of view? They said, no, we wouldn't. I said, well, no Bible study then. <laughs> if you're not open to the possibility of another view, then why should we have a Bible study? And you know what shocked these two Jehovah's Witnesses was that I was not arrogant with them. They were very, very surprised that I was respectful and I was kind to them and I wasn't argumentative and I wasn't arrogant with them. I was just very, very simple, very straight. They shook my hand at the end. They left their brochure with me. Whenever they leave their brochure, they have to come back. So I always take the brochure because I always want them to come back <laughs> so that I will talk to them, try and knock some sense into those Jehovah's Witnesses, right? But not with arrogance, not with arrogance. Because when you do so with arrogance, let me tell you, you're not being biblical. You, if you believe that what Jesus said was true, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, he didn't say to go about that being arrogant. He didn't say be arrogant in your presentation. Uh, and the way that we see this done in the scripture, even Jesus' claim himself, he's not, 
he's not coming across in an arrogant fashion. He's trying to present, in his view, at least in his mind, you could say, objective truth. I am that way. I am that truth, and I am that life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And he backs it up by being raised from the dead. Look at the way that, that Paul and Peter uh, presented in the book of Acts. And we've seen this before as well. They're facing the heat from the Sanhedrin because of a public healing of a crippled man at the, at the entrance to the temple gate. And they're starting to preach about Jesus and saying that Jesus was the one who healed this man. And because of his resurrection, this man is healed. And so they say another exclusive truth claim. Acts chapter 4, verses 12 to 20. Salvation is found in no one else. Oh, that's exclusive. For there is no other name under heaven. Very exclusive. Given to mankind. Very, very exclusive. By which we must be saved. Oh, it's very narrow. Verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they're just ordinary men, unschooled, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they saw the man who was healed, they saw, they, they, they could see him in front of their eyes. There's nothing they could say. And so they ordered these men to withdraw from the Sanhedrin. And they conferred together. And they said, what are we going to do with these guys? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that, knows that they performed this, this notable sign, this miracle. We can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to stop speaking in this name. Stop talking about Jesus. So they called them back in, and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Keep your mouth shut. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You, you be the judge. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. You want to throw us into prison? Throw us into prison. But we're going to keep talking because we can't help but keep talking. You don't really see an arrogance level there. They're willing to face the consequences for believing what they believe, but they're not going to be silent about it. They're going to keep going, come what may. Um, Acts chapter 17, back at the Areopagus, and Paul uh, talking to these very non-Christian people, he, he stands up in front of them, and he says, people of Athens, um, I see that in every way, this is the beginning of his conversation, in every way, you're very religious. I see lots of religion in your area here in Athens. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar, get this, with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are, you, what you don't know, the God that you don't know, I'm going to tell you about that God. Wow, that's not very arrogant. He's looking for a way to present what he believes but he's not standing there saying, oh, you terrible Athenian people, you're all going to burn in hellfire because of your idolatry. Look at these horrible idols over here. Look at this religious view over there. Mine is superior. I'm going to convert you all because you're all going to burn in the eternal flames of Hades. He doesn't say that. He says, I, I, I see one there to an unknown God. Let me tell you about that God. Ah, this is, this is a very different response. So he's not compromising his beliefs. He's just not wasting his time condemning the rest. He's trying to find a way to build a bridge so that he can present 
his claim to truth as he believes it in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And this is what he does in the Areopagus. Uh, reaction number three that you're going to hear or even have, that's so dangerous that you believe in this exclusive truth claim. When you have arrogance in a group of believers and you have a view of superiority, did I put that picture on the screen before? Go back one. I didn't talk about it. Yeah, three universal truths that all religions <laughs> agree upon. We are right, everyone else is wrong, and we are better than you. Where do you see this in the preaching in the New Testament? You, you don't see that arrogance level. The problem is, is that you do see that arrogance level today. And that's when it can become, it develops into danger and fear where you have a group of believers making an exclusive truth claim and they begin to feel like they're better than everybody else and superior to everybody else. By the way, one, one uh, great teacher, um, I think it was Bill Bright, he said, we're just one beggar telling another beggar where the food is. You know, that, there's no arrogance there. Uh, but when there is arrogance, it can develop into something a lot more dangerous. And we, we can't minimalize this at all because this is what we see in history and this is what we see even now. We do have examples, uh, even if you don't look at the here and now, where people who, who have claimed to be believers, followers of Jesus, uh, who have been the cause of violence, who have been the cause of persecution of other beliefs. I'm not talking about ISIS. I'm talking about the past right now, where we have this even in the history of Christendom. We have this happen. Um, and it's often said religion is one of the causes of war and perhaps the great, greatest cause of war. And for, unfortunately, this is often very, very true. Uh, we see this now on a daily basis. Uh, and I'll use the word ISIS, but you know what I mean when I say that. And we see this. We see a, a group that has an exclusive truth claim that says we will violently persuade a state to adhere to our truth claim. And we will do so with persecution and we will do so with violence because we have an exclusive truth claim and everybody else better come under it, and this is what we see now. But folks, this is nothing that is really new. This has happened in the past before. Perhaps the way and the violence level and all of that has changed, obviously, but this view is not anything really new. When we look at history, again, and we look even at Christendom, and I'll use that term, we can see this. And I come from a background where this is very, very palpable. Um, the first few centuries of church history, leading even now into the modern era, has shown the persecution done by the hands of people who profess to be Christians against the Jewish people and against others as well. Um, and this cannot be ignored. Uh, this, is, this is history. So in the, at the end of the first century, you have uh, about 100,000 believers many historians say, who are, who are Christians, who are Gentiles. They're not Jewish. And you have about 6 million Jewish people at the end of the first century across the Roman Empire. Okay, 100,000 
Gentile Christians, that's non-Jewish Christians, and six million Jewish people. By the end of the second century, the stats had changed dramatically. And some say you could have had up to seven million people professing faith in Christ who were Gentiles, who were not Jewish people. And Rome, as a result, would persecute this new community, uh, this new belief system of Christianity. Rome was tolerant to anything that uh, uh, came before its dominance, but anything new, it was not tolerant toward. And so Rome would persecute the church, and the church would argue that their belief system was just an, a growth out of Judaism, which Rome accepted. But the, there was a divide between the Jews who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah and this new church, and the Jews did not, to a large extent, come to their rescue, if you're following me so far. And so there was persecution that broke out, and resentment began to grow between Jews and Christians right in the first few centuries of Christianity. This is not often preached upon, uh, but this is, this is historically true. You have several even theologians, prominent theologians in the first four centuries who would argue for the persecution of the Jewish people. Uh, Augustine, who is a great theologian in many respects, wrote a tract called Against the Jews. It was a very significant tract. Uh, there was a contemporary of Augustine, John uh, uh, Chrysostom, who would also uh, 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 preach that it was the Jews who murdered Jesus, and therefore the Jews are the killers of Christ, and we need to persecute the Jews. And this is early in the game. This is in the first 400, 500 years of church history. And this is the view that the Nazis would use uh, in the modern era, they would take the writings of these theologians that were very, very old, and they would use those to justify the extermination of a people in the name of Christianity. Violence and genocide in the name of Christianity. And so Jews today are taught to fear Christians. I know because that's my background. They're taught that Christians want to convert them any way possible, even through violence if possible. They want to convert them, watch out for them. They're going to turn you to the other side. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Um, well, I drank the Kool-Aid, <laughs> okay? And so some of my Jewish family, you know, they don't talk to me or whatever, or I'm dead to them and all this kind of stuff. Why? Because of what was done to them by people who professed the name of Christ. And that's true, folks. That's true history. Now, uh, you know, you say, well, those people weren't real Christians, blah, 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 blah. Of course, I agree with you. Of course, they weren't real Christians. But at the same time, the, the fear is there. And so you have a great divide uh, between Jews and Christians. Uh, uh, some of that is changing a little bit. Uh, some of you who are, who are Christians and you work for, for Jewish people or with Jewish people and you talk about Israel in a positive way and all that, they might, they might be shocked that you're so nice to them, okay? And that, that may be changing over time, but essentially there's this fear because of history and because of what was done. That's why we need to be very, very careful uh, when we say, well, you know, this is a new thing that we're seeing with ISIS and these terrorist groups. Uh, the mentality is not so new. It's not that new. Again, whenever there's an exclusive truth claim, this type of arrogance can happen. 
and it turns into danger and it turns into persecution and it turns into war. The question is, do we see this in the Scripture? Do we see this kind of stuff justified in the Scripture? And we don't. We see the total opposite in Scripture, the total opposite. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with arrogance and hatred. Does it say that? No, it says, but do this with gentleness and with respect. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with the person. It means you have to be gentle with the person. It means you have to respect the person. They may be of a different belief system than you. They may believe in another objective truth than you do, but you still do so. This is the reason why I believe, and I present it to you with gentleness, and I present it to you with respect. If you are a person in the room today and you're not a, a, a Christ follower, you're not a Christian, unfortunately, you cannot use the excuse, it's because of Christians that I'm not a Christian. <laughs> That's, it, it would be a convenient excuse, you know, uh, there are bumper stickers, you know, Lord, protect me from your followers. <laughs> because of the, some of the things and the ways that people who profess to be Christians behave. But in the end... You've, your, your decision is what are you going to do with Jesus, okay? The church may lead you astray or people who profess to be part of the church may lead you astray. But in the end, you've got to do something with the statement that Jesus made, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You have to do something with that. You're responsible for, you're accountable for that statement. And uh, in the end, that's what God is looking for. What are you doing with my son? You've been, you've been hurt, you've been deceived, you, all these people who claim to be Christians did all this stuff to you, but what are you doing with my son? What have you done with my son? This is, the, this is a big, big question. You don't become a Christian um, because of someone else. You may be influenced by someone else. You may have good relationships with people in a church community, and that leads you to make a decision, but in the end, the decision that you make is about Jesus. Because he transcends that relationship that you have with another person. Do you understand the difference? So when you come to Christ, you come to Christ. That's expressed in a community of faith, and that's very, very important. But first and foremost, it's about Christ. And if you're a Christian in this room, please realize that people are evaluating Jesus Christ because of you. They're evaluating God because of you. The things that you say, the way that you behave, the way you talk, the way you live, if they know you're a Christian, they're watching you with a microscope. You may not realize it, but they're watching you. And they want to see if you're the real deal, if there's any authenticity or if it's just a bunch of fluff. And if it's fluff, I guarantee you, all you're doing is adding another roadblock between them and God. It's not that God can't break through it, but you just added another roadblock by your behavior or by the things you say, the things that you do. Ouch. But the, the vision of God that people have is through his church, his body. That's why it's called his body. So they see God through us. The question is, what are they seeing? I'm not so sure sometimes. It makes me nervous. And, well, and just as we conclude, a word about the word religion, because it's a word that, oh boy, it scares people. Uh, the Bible, when it, when it translates a certain word into the word religion, 
It does so somewhat rarely. I love this final statement by James, and then we can take some questions because I see some of you are, are, are leaning forward, which is good. Um, uh, James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, he says this, those of you who think about religion, those who consider themselves religious and do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Wow, very strong. Here's religion, according to James, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Here we go. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's God's religion. That's the religion that he likes. <laughs> the religion that he doesn't like is the one where the religious can't keep a tight rein on their tongues. Ouch. This is from James, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, and perhaps we should take note of the passage now more than ever. There are so many things that are done today that we need to be careful of. Yes, we believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father through him. But the way that we present that is critical. Always be prepared to give an answer to the person who asks you, but do so, do so with gentleness and respect. You catch more flies with honey. Amen? All right, then. It's only 11.05, so we can take a few minutes. Uh, this is pretty, you know, a lot of people in here for, a, for a, a mid-July. I wonder if there are any questions about this that yeah, I've pricked your ears a little bit today. You can go ahead and shout it out. Doesn't matter. Going once. Yes, Joanne. Uh, well, yes. I mean, the statement in and of itself um, is, is proof positive. I mean, we're called to believe the statement. Uh, but even, again, in the preaching of Peter and John in Acts, they make the, the exclusive statement as well. Um, at the baptism of Jesus, uh, you hear this voice from heaven, the voice of God. This is my beloved son. This is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. Um, at the transfiguration where, where Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain with Jesus as he's transfigured, uh, the voice of God comes and says, uh, this is my son, listen to him. So there's an authentication from God the Father about the, the, the claims of his son. Yeah, in that sense, yes. But some could turn around and say, well, I don't believe that that happened on that mountain. I don't believe that that voice came, right? So, you know, it, it ends up being a matter of faith. Do we believe that God actually authenticated this uh, and authenticated Jesus? And this is why, in the end, the, the argument rises or falls on did Jesus rise from the dead or not? If the resurrection happened, if Jesus was dead in that tomb, and three days later, he was actually physically alive. Then we have reason to believe the statement that he made and the things that he said. Ultimately, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. And all of the, all of the, the, you know, the better theologians 
um, of the last hundred years, uh, even longer, would say, in the end, it's about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In the end. If that did not happen, then, you know, our belief system really, it's, uh, it's uh, as we saw in the movie, The Case for Christ, it's a house of cards. It comes down very, very quickly. So while we can say, you know, God said this about Jesus in the Bible, God said this about Jesus in the Bible, okay, but did Jesus rise from the dead, yes or no? That's, that's where the rubber meets the road. Does that make sense? It's a, a very good question you asked, yeah. Any others? Any question is a good question, even if you're a doubting Thomas. I like doubting Thomas as I am a doubting Thomas. Going once? Yes. 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 They are? Yeah, they're pro, yeah. Yes. An excellent question you ask. Um, so just to summarize, uh, w what she's saying is that we have many, uh, in, a, in the modern world, we have many churches that are closing their doors. Uh, this is true, by the way. Even in the Western world here, uh, two-thirds of Protestant evangelical churches are either uh, flatlined or in decline. Two out of three. So you have many churches that are closing their doors, but you have many that are opening their doors. And you have some churches that accept certain practices that are, you know, directly unbiblical or anti-biblical. For instance, the whole debate about same-sex marriage. So you have a, a given church that would allow uh, a same-sex marriage and, and solemnize a same-sex marriage ceremony. How do, we, how do we deal with that? How do we interact with that? How do we talk to people who believe that sort of thing? That's the question. Well, with gentleness and respect. <laughs> I remember one time I was preaching a message, and um, it had nothing to do with the subject of homosexuality but I read a passage in the New Testament, just read it. I didn't even comment on it. And it had a list of, a list of practices uh, that clearly uh, the writer, Paul, uh, is saying are, are sin. And in that list was, was homosexuality. And at the end of the message, uh, there was a gay couple who came up to me. And they said to me, we really liked your message. We really thought that it was a terrific message. Until the part where you said that homosexuality is wrong. How can you say that? Look at us. And, you know, they, they started with their whole thing. And I said, I, I said sir, I, I, I respect your opinion. Uh, I appreciate your opinion. But, you know, in this church, you are going to hear that homosexuality is sin. Uh, we believe the Bible in this church. We interpret the Bible this way when it comes to those passages because he had a whole, a whole litany of arguments of, you know, he twisted this scripture around his back and this scripture around his back. And he said, that, 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 I said, no, this is the way that it's written. This is the way that we interpret it. So you're going to hear that. And so I just, you may be offended by that, but that's what we believe. So I just, I hope that you would respect that. That's what we believe the Bible is teaching. 
And uh, the, the, the two guys at the end, they were like, well, we agree to disagree. And they gave me a kiss on the cheek, you know, the two guys. And, uh, and we called it a day. Um, but the interesting thing about the experience was that I did, not, I did not comment about the passage that I read. I just read it. And they were so upset. They say, you said that homosexuality is wrong. Well, all I did was read the passage. <laughs> and what it, what it taught me was that there's already something that God is doing in people's lives, you know. And sometimes we think we have to hit people over the head uh, and pound it into them. Well, sometimes you just, look, this is what the Scripture says. If it offends you, maybe it offends you because God's doing something to offend you. So in the end, the same principle applies. You want to do so with gentleness and respect. And I do believe that the church can articulate a proper response to the whole LGBTQ community with gentleness and respect. And in the end, they have to say, well, this is what the church community believes. We disagree with it, but at least they love us. At least they don't hate us. At least they're not trying to hurt us. But the problem is that some churches and some Christians do want to hurt them. And some do come off as very offensive, very arrogant, very condemning uh, toward the whole LGBTQ community. When in the end, sin is sin. I mean, the, in God's eyes, the gossiper is just as sinful as the homosexual in God's eyes. But to us, we pick and choose which sin is more sinful and which is more nasty. Well, God doesn't. He paints the whole thing with one nasty brush. So to him, it's all nasty, right? Whether it's gluttony, gossip, or sexual sin, it's all sin to God. You know, I've had friends who, who are lesbian. I've had friends who are gay. Um, you know, and I treat them the same way as everybody else. But if they expect me to say that their lifestyle is a good one, I won't. I'll say it's sin, you know, and they'll know that about me. Well, he thinks it's sin. Yes, I do. And I think God does too. And they say, well, we don't. Okay. But I'm, I'm telling you what I believe with gentleness and respect. And in the end, that's what we have to do. Does that make some sense? Yeah, it's a big, big issue. Big, big issue. The LGBTQ scene in the same-sex marriage scene. You guys are asking amazing questions. We've got time for one more. Going once. Yes, Joe's. Yes. 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 
Yeah, well, there's several things there. And um, uh, so, so what Joe's is saying, uh, if, if, I've got it, uh, if I've got it straight, is the, the, the idea of the guarantee of salvation, which we have because of the grace of God, because of the work of Jesus on the cross. It's not by works, it's by our faith in what he's done. And we haven't done anything to get it. It's a gift. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's the grace of God. It's a gift of God. Um, this should not produce arrogance. It, it sometimes does in believers, but it shouldn't. It, it, what, he's, what he's saying is that the New Testament would argue it should produce humility. <laughs> it should produce a reverence for God, and it should produce a lifestyle that says, well, now I need to live this way because I'm saved by grace. Because God has done this for me, I therefore now need, need to live a certain way. Um, and there needs to be a humility is the correct response to grace rather than pride. I, I take it as what you're saying. There's also a bigger argument, uh, you know, that could be a subject for another day. And that is, you know, the once saved, always saved question mark. You know, if a person's saved, can they ever lose it? Uh, you know, can they walk away from God and all of that? But I think a, a more relevant question uh, and subject is what Joe's is saying. So you're saved by grace, yes, and that should produce a response of humility. That should produce, if it's working, it should produce humility rather than arrogance and pride. Amazing question. Stand with me. We'll close in prayer.